be sure to follow Send Me to Sleep on your preferred podcast player so you never miss an episode and a good night's rest. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew. Thanks for joining me and for taking this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading The Cricket on the Hearth by Charles Dickens. Chapter 1, Chirp the First, Part 3. In the last part, Mr. Tackleton, the toymaker, had just walked through the door. In this part, Tackleton invites the Peerybingles to his upcoming wedding. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. What he was in toys, he was, as most men are, in other things. You may easily suppose, therefore, that within the great green cape, which reached down to the calf of his legs, there was buttoned up to the chin an uncommonly pleasant fellow, and that he was about as choice a spirit and as agreeable a companion as ever stood in a pair of bull-headed-looking boots with mahogany-coloured tops. Still, Tackleton the toymaker was going to be married. In spite of all this, he was going to be married, and to a young wife too, a beautiful young wife. He didn't look much like a bridegroom as he stood in the carrier's kitchen with a twist in his dry face and a screw in his body and his hat jerked over the bridge of his nose and his hands tucked down into the bottom of his pockets and his whole sarcastic, ill-conditioned self peering out of one of the little corners of his eye. Like the concentrated essence of any number of ravens. But a bridegroom he designed to be. In three days' time, next Thursday, the last day of the first month in the year, that's my wedding day, 
said Tackleton. Did I mention that he had always one eye wide open and one eye nearly shut, and that the one eye nearly shut was always the expressive eye? I don't think I did. That's my wedding day, said Tackleton, rattling his money. Why, it's our wedding day too, exclaimed the carrier. Ha ha, laughed Tackleton. Odd, you're just such another couple. Just. The indignation of Dot at this presumptuous assertion is not to be described. What next? His imagination would compass the possibility of just such another baby, perhaps. The man was mad. I say, a word with you, murmured Tackleton, nudging the carrier with his elbow and taking him a little apart. You'll come to the wedding. We're in the same boat, you know. How in the same boat? inquired the carrier. A little disparity, you know, said Tackleton with another nudge. Come and spend an evening with us beforehand. Why? demanded John, astonished at this pressing hospitality. Why? returned the other. That's a new way of receiving an invitation. Why, for pleasure, sociability, you know, and all that. I thought you were never sociable, said John, in his plain way. Tish, it's of no use to be anything but free with you, I see, said Tackleton. Why then, the truth is, you have a, what tea-drinking people call, a sort of comfortable appearance together, you and your wife. We know better, you know, but... No, we don't know better, interposed John. What are you talking about? Well... We don't know better then, said Tackleton. We'll agree that we don't, as you like. What does it matter? I was going to say, as you have that sort of appearance, your company will produce a favourable effect on Mrs. Tackleton. That will be. And, though I don't think your good lady's very friendly to me, in this matter. Still, she can't help herself from falling into my views, for there's a compactness and coziness of appearance about her that always tells, even in an indifferent case. You'll say you'll come. We've arranged to keep our wedding day, as far as that goes, at home, said John. 
We have made the promise to ourselves these six months. We think, you see, that home... Bah. What's home? cried Tackleton. Four walls and a ceiling. Why don't you kill that cricket? I would. I always do. I hate their noise. There are four walls and a ceiling at my house. Come to me. You kill your crickets, eh? said John. Scrunch em, sir, returned the other, setting his heels heavily on the floor. You'll say you'll come. It's as much your interest as mine, you know, that the women should persuade each other that they're quiet and contented and couldn't be better off. I know their way. Whatever one woman says, another woman is determined to clinch. Always. There's that spirit of emulation among them, sir, that if your wife says to my wife, I'm the happiest woman in the world, and mine's the best husband in the world, and I dote on him. My wife will say the same to yours, or more, and half believe it. Do you mean to say... She don't, then, asked the carrier. Don't, cried Tackleton, with a short, sharp laugh. Don't what? The carrier had some faint idea of adding, Dote upon you. But happening to meet the half-closed eye, as it twinkled upon him over the turned-up collar of the cape, which was within an ace of poking it out. He felt it such an unlikely part and parcel of anything to be doted on, that he substituted, that she don't believe it. Ah, you dog, you're joking, said Tackleton. But the carrier though slow to understand the full drift of his meaning, eyed him in such a serious manner that he was obliged to be a little more explanatory. I have the humour, said Tackleton, holding up the fingers of his left hand and tapping the forefinger to imply, there I am, Tackleton to wit, I have the humour, sir, to marry a young wife, and a pretty wife. Here he wrapped his little finger to express the bride, not sparingly, but sharply, with a sense of power. I'm able to gratify that humour, and I do. It's my whim. But now... Look there. He pointed to where Dot was sitting thoughtfully, before the fire, leaning her dimpled chin upon her hand and watching the bright blaze. The carrier looked at her, and then at him, and then at her, and then at him again, 
She honours and obeys. No doubt you know, said Tackleton. And that, as I am not a man of sentiment, is quite enough for me. But do you think there's anything more in it? I think, observed the carrier, that I should chuck any man out of window who said there wasn't. Exactly so, returned the other with an unusual alacrity of assent. To be sure, doubtless you would. Of course, I'm certain of it. Good night, pleasant dreams. The carrier was puzzled and made uncomfortable and uncertain in spite of himself. He couldn't help showing it in his manner. Good night, my dear friend, said Tackleton compassionately. I'm off. We're exactly alike in reality, I see. You won't give us tomorrow evening. Well, next day you go out visiting, I know. I'll meet you there and bring my wife that is to be. It'll do her good. You're agreeable. Thank you. What's that? It was a loud cry from the carrier's wife. A loud, sharp, sudden cry that made the room ring like a glass vessel. She had risen from her seat and stood like one transfixed by terror and surprise. The stranger had advanced towards the fire to warm himself and stood within a short stride of her chair, but quite still. Dot, cried the carrier. Mary, darling, what's the matter? They were all about her in a moment. Caleb, who had been dozing on the cake box in the first imperfect recovery of his suspended presence of mind, seized Miss Slowboy by the hair of her head, but immediately apologised. Mary, exclaimed the carrier, supporting her in his arms. You're ill. What is it? Tell me, dear. She only answered by beating her hands together and falling into a wild fit of laughter. Then, sinking from his grasp upon the ground, she covered her face with her apron and wept bitterly. And then she laughed again. And then she cried again. And then she said how cold it was and suffered him to lead her to the fire where she sat down as before. The old man standing as before, quite still. I'm better, John, 
she said. I'm quite well now. I... John... But John was on the other side of her. Why turn her face towards the strange old gentleman, as if addressing him? Was her brain wandering? Only a fancy, John dear, a kind of shock, a something coming suddenly before my eyes. I don't know what it was. It's gone. It's quite gone. I'm glad it's gone, muttered Tackleton, turning the expressive eye all the way round the room. I wonder where it's gone, and what it was. Hmm. Caleb, come here. Who's that with the grey hair? I don't know, sir returned Caleb in a whisper. Never seen him before in all my life. A beautiful figure for a nutcracker. Quite a new model. With a screw jar opening down into his waistcoat. He'd be lovely. Not ugly enough, said Tackleton. Or for a firebox either observed Caleb in deep contemplation. What a model. Unscrew his head to put the matches in, turn him heels upwards for the light, and what a firebox for a gentleman's mantel shelf, just as he stands. Not half ugly enough, said Tackleton. Nothing in him at all. Come, bring that box. All right now, I hope. Oh, quite gone, quite gone, said the little woman, waving him hurriedly away. Good night. Good night, said Tackleton. Good night, John Peerybingle. Take care how you carry that box, Caleb. Let it fall, and I'll murder you. Dark as pitch, and weather worse than ever, eh? Good night. So, with another sharp look round the room, he went out at the door, followed by Caleb with the wedding cake on his head. The carrier had been so much astounded by his little wife, and so busily engaged in soothing and tending her, that he had scarcely been conscious of the stranger's presence, until now, when he again stood there, their only guest. He don't belong to them, you see, said John. I must give him a hint to go. I beg your pardon, friend, said the old gentleman, advancing to him. The more so, as I fear your wife has not been well, but the attendant whom my infirmity... He touched his ears and shook his head, 
renders almost indispensable. Not having arrived, I fear there must be some mistake. The bad night which made the shelter of your comfortable cart, may I never have a worse, so acceptable, is still as bad as ever. Would you, in your kindness, suffer me to rent a bed here? Yes, yes, cried Dot. Yes, certainly. Oh, said the carrier, surprised by the rapidity of this consent. Well, I don't object, but still, I'm not quite sure that... Hush, she interrupted. Dear John... Why, he's stone deaf, urged John. I know he is, but... Yes, sir, certainly. Yes, certainly. I'll make him up a bed directly, John. And she hurried off to do it. The flutter of her spirits and the agitation of her manner was so strange that the carrier stood looking after her, quite confounded. Did its mother make it up a bed then? cried Miss Slowboy to the baby. And did its hair grow brown and curly when its cap was lifted off and frightened it, a precious pets, a sitting by the fires? With this unaccountable attraction of the mind to trifles, which is often incidental to a state of doubt and confusion, the carrier, as he walked slowly to and fro, found himself mentally repeating even these absurd words many times. So many times that he got them by heart and was still conning them over and over, like a lesson, when Tilly, after administering as much friction to the little bald head with her hand as she thought was wholesome, according to the practice of nurses, had once more tied the baby's cap on, and frightened it, a precious pet, sitting by the fires. What frightened Dot, I wonder, mused the carrier, pacing to and fro. He scouted from his heart the insinuations of the toy merchant, and yet they filled him with a vague, indefinite uneasiness. For Tackleton was quick, and sly, and he had that painful sense himself of being a man of slow perception, that a broken hint was always worrying to him. He certainly had no intention in his mind of linking anything that Tackleton had said with the unusual conduct of his wife. But the two subjects of reflection came into his mind together 
and he could not keep them asunder. The bed was soon made ready, and the visitor, declining all refreshment but a cup of tea, retired. Then, Dot quite well again, she said, quite well again, arranged the great chair in the chimney corner for her husband, filled his pipe and gave it him, and took her usual stool beside him on the hearth. She always would sit on that little stool. I think she must have had a kind of notion that it was a coaxing, wheedling little stool. She was, out and out, the very best filler of a pipe, I should say, in the four quarters of the globe. To see her put that chubby little finger in the bowl and then blow down the pipe to clear the tube, and, when she'd done so, affect to think that there was really something in the tube, and blow a dozen times, and hold it to her eye like a telescope, with a most provoking twist in her capital little face, as she looked down it, was quite a brilliant thing. As to the tobacco, she was a perfect mistress of the subject, and her lighting of the pipe with a wisp of paper when the carrier had it in his mouth, going so very near his nose and yet not scorching it, was art, high art. And the cricket and the kettle turning up again, acknowledged it. The bright fire, blazing up again, also acknowledged it. The little mower on the clock, in his unheeded work, acknowledged it. The carrier, in his smoothing forehead and expanding face, acknowledged it, the readiest of all. And as he soberly and thoughtfully puffed at his old pipe, and as the Dutch clock ticked, and as the red fire gleamed, and as the cricket chirped, that genius of the hearth and home, for such the cricket was, came out in fairy shape into the room and summoned many forms of home about him. Dots of all ages and all sizes filled the chamber. Dots who were merry children, running on before him gathering flowers in the fields. Coy dots, half shrinking from, half yielding to, the pleading of his own rough image. Newly married dots, alighting at the door and taking wondering possession of the household keys. Motherly little dots, 
attended by fictitious slow boys bearing babies to be christened. Matronly dots, still young and blooming, watching dots of daughters as they danced at rustic balls. Fat dots, encircled and beset by troops of rosy children. Withered dots, who leaned on sticks and tottered as they crept along. Old carriers, too, appeared, with blind old boxes lying at their feet, and new carts with younger drivers, Peary Bingle brothers on the tilt, and sick old carriers, tended by the gentlest hands, and graves of dead and gone old carriers, green in the churchyard. And as the cricket showed him all these things, he saw them plainly, though his eyes were fixed upon the fire. The carrier's heart grew light and happy, and he thanked his household gods with all his might, and cared no more for Gruff and Tackleton than you do. But what was that young figure of a man, which the same fairy cricket set so near her stool, and which remained there, singly alone? Why did it linger still, so near her, with its arm upon the chimney piece, ever repeating, Married, and not to me? Oh, Dot, oh, failing Dot, there is no place for it in all your husband's visions. Why has its shadow fallen on his hearth? Chapter 9 